1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
0: For joining us this afternoon at the Heritage Foundation, we're delighted you're spending uh, at least a few moments of your afternoon with us. Uh, it's. Uh, I would ask you to check your mobile device, cell phone, make sure that little red thing is sticking out, that it's muted or off, whichever you prefer, so that we don't have any uh, interruptions as we go along here. Uh, we are so honored to have as our guest speaker, Dr. Christopher Ford, the Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation. He will give us his thoughts on the Nonproliferation Treaty and some of the false narratives that exist concerning that agreement. Dr. Ford was sworn in as Assistant Secretary on January 9, 2018. Before that, Dr. Ford served as the Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director of Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counterproliferation at the National Security Council. He began his public service in 1996 as Assistant Counsel to the Intelligence Oversight Board and during his distinguished career has served on multiple congressional staffs, as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the State Department's Bureau of Verification and Compliance, U.S. Special Representative for Nuclear Nonproliferation, and as a Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute. Dr. Ford also served as an Intelligence Officer in the United States Navy Reserve from 1994 until 2001, receiving an honorable discharge at the rank of Lieutenant Commander. He's the author of three books, scores of articles, and monographs, Dr. Ford earned a bachelor's of arts degree summa cum laude at Harvard University, a doctor of philosophy at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, and his degree in law at the Yale Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Ford.
1: Uh, Thanks very much, everyone, and good day. It's always a pleasure to be back here at, at Heritage. Um, in, in my line of work at the State Department, we um, manage U.S. relations with the nuclear nonproliferation treaty review process. Um, and in, in that context, we're coming up on a big anniversary. Uh, next year will be the 50th anniversary of that treaty's entry into force, um, and that'll be the occasion of, the, of a review conference, which will have great symbolic and political significance as a, as a result of that. So. Um, in the run-up to that big conference, um, I'm frequently asked questions about nuclear disarmament um, and what more, in particular, what more the United States can do uh, to reassure the international community that we indeed remain faithful to the provisions of the treaty that relate to nuclear disarmament, specifically uh, Article 6 of the treaty um, and uh, portions of its preamble. So my usual answer to those kinds of questions about what we can do more on disarmament um, are to to focus the questioner upon the challenges that we all face in the security environment right now. Um, these challenges to the, – the, from that environment to the disarmament enterprise are, are quite real, because as we all know, uh, we are now um, in a, uh, a new era of great power competition uh, with the revisionist powers of China and Russia um, putting pressure upon us and upon our allies in their own bids to remake the international system into something that looks more like uh, – more like their own authoritarian image and with Russia, for example, feeling free to uh, – seeming to feel free to violate arms control agreements whenever it likes, um, Not surprisingly, um, these are challenges uh, for the disarmament enterprise because, of course, our responsibility first and foremost is to protect the security and advance the interests of the American people. So how does one pursue disarmament in that context uh, is indeed the question of the day. I also tend to point – questioners about these topics, uh, to the initiative that we in the U.S. have recently uh, rolled out, um, the so-called Creating an Environment for Nuclear Disarmament initiative. Uh, and I point to the multi-party dialogue and working groups that we are in the process of getting underway uh, to bring states together uh, through that process to think more constructively about how it is that we can provide answers to some of these broader security challenges. Uh, I also mentioned, in response to such questions, something called the International Partnership for Nuclear Disarmament Verification, or IPNDV, which continues to enjoy broad support as it also brings states together to help explore how to verify, in that particular case, uh, the challenges of verifying the disarmament may have occurred. And so I urge listeners to, um, uh, to remember those things. And I also urge them to remember that an enormous amount of disarmament progress has, in fact, already occurred and been possible uh, by virtue of the easing of tensions uh, at the end of the Cold War permitting us and our Russian counterparts to draw down our nuclear arsenals by something on the order of between 80 and 90% from their Cold War peaks. So that is important, and I think it is important to draw attention to all of those things uh, and to remember those, um, rather than accepting at face value some of the very easy, facile critiques that are sometimes made for a supposed lack of progress on disarmament. Um, But I think it's also important to clarify the role that disarmament does and does not play in um, in the broader context of NPT diplomacy. You will not be surprised to hear that my interlocutors in dealing with NPT issues will sometimes have suggestions for us about what they say would be a good way for the U.S. to help show its disarmament bona fides, thus contributing to a more successful 2020 review conference for the treaty. Uh, Those suggestions I trust are always well-intentioned, but they are not always that useful. Sometimes they indeed fail to address or even acknowledge the need to address some of the very deterioration in the international security environment to which I referred earlier as a result, some of those prescriptions um, will occasionally miss the mark. And so identifying contemporary international security problems and how they affect the disarmament enterprise and exploring how to help meet those in a way that provides for the kind of safe and stable disarmament that it is, of course, our collective objective to achieve, that's what we're trying to do with the CEND initiative. Um, But in order to make sure that that works, it is sometimes necessary to cut through the underbrush of some of the perhaps confused narratives um, that it is often, uh, that are often advanced in the disarmament community in order to get to things that are indeed more likely to be generally, generally productive. So with your permission, I'd like to explore some of that terrain a little bit today. Um, so let me start um, by outlining a little bit about how we think about the relationship between nonproliferation diplomacy and the disarmament enterprise in the first place. It's sometimes alleged that the US should take certain disarmament-related steps as a way to encourage more nonproliferation cooperation from others. That's a linkage that is often asserted. Um, this appears to be based upon the idea that the structure of the NPT represents a kind of bargain in which the non nuclear weapon states, as so identified under the treaty, agree to support nonproliferation only conditionally. That is to say, only to the degree that the nuclear weapon states themselves move with what those non weapon states feel to be is feel to be sufficient rapidity towards disarmament. Uh, now this bargain notion is pretty widespread and it does appeal to certain sort of anti-Western G77 sort of political sentiments. Uh, and it is even, and it was even advanced as one of the justifications for the Obama administration's so-called Prague agenda. But I would submit that this particular interpretation bears very little, if any, relationship to the text or the history of the NPT itself. And I would argue also that this bargain concept also does not reflect um, the, the obvious geopolitical reality about which the drafters of the treaty themselves spoke rather clearly. That is to say, it does not reflect that the non assurances provided by the NPT offer huge security benefits to all parties. Indeed, it offers such benefits not, not just to the nuclear weapons states, but particularly to the non weapon states. Um, which have powerful reasons not to see their neighbors or regional rivals, for example, acquire nuclear weapons. Um, And of course, who by definition, these being non-weapon states I'm talking about, who by definition would lack nuclear tools with which to deter threats from such proliferators if this occurred. So these security benefits for non-proliferation accrue to all parties to the treaty in very profound ways. Um, and it's worth remembering that because it gives non-weapon states a powerful security interest and stake in the success of the treaty in the global non-proliferation regime that is entirely independent of any other factor um, beyond simply that, uh, those assurances themselves. There are many other benefits to the treaty, of course, but, uh, but even from that perspective alone, it's worth remembering that. But I would argue also that there is no meaningful evidentiary support for the theory that disarmament movement, on our part or on other uh, weapons possessors' part, is sort of the secret to catalyzing successful non-proliferation cooperation, although the previous U.S. administration seems to have believed that. Um, and of course, we are frequently told that by interlocutors who are trying to use that negotiating point or that dip, that uh, rhetorical point as leverage to get us to do more to support their own disarmament agendas. In reality, I, as, as research undertaken by the U.S. National Security Laboratories has pointed out, there is indeed little evidence in the academic literature or elsewhere uh, to support such claims of a linkage between disarmament progress and successful non-proliferation diplomacy. I think that assessment is probably correct. In this administration, um, we explored these assertions rather carefully during our review of disarmament policy in 2017, uh, out of which came the CEND initiative. Um, now, to begin with, I think there is remarkably little evidence. Uh, as we were looking into this, it, it became clear there was remarkably little evidence that a- there, a- any potential proliferator, if you will, has ever made its decisions about whether to acquire nuclear weapons based upon the nature or the pace of nuclear disarmament by the nuclear weapons states. Nor am I aware of any evidence of any country ever having made decisions about whether preventing the spread of nuclear weapons to others was a good idea simply on the basis of such considerations, which of course is very consistent with my understanding that I mentioned earlier of how, in fact, even on its own terms, the non-proliferation assurances of the treaty provide great benefit to everybody. So if anything, uh, as we realized during the course of our review, the history of the post-Cold War period actually suggests the possibility that disarmament and non-proliferation are correlated in a very different and potentially disturbing way. During the post-Cold War era, we in the U.S., as I alluded to before, succeeded in reducing our nuclear arsenal by something on the order of 88%. But it's notable that during that very same period, three additional countries openly acquired and tested nuclear weapons, Two additional countries undertook secret nuclear weapons programs, and these were facilitated by an illicit worldwide network that supplied its customers with uranium enrichment technology and even nuclear weapons designs. The resulting threat from North Korean nuclear weapons and from long-range ballistic missiles there and from Iran's continued possession of capabilities that would allow it to easily resume its push towards weaponization – and the growing nuclear weapons programs in South Asia that face off against each other, all of this has left the nonproliferation community struggling with some very difficult challenges during precisely the period in which post-Cold War War arsenals were coming down dramatically, Uh, which leads, of course, to some obvious questions about the nature of the correlation, or the connection, if there is one, between disarmament and nonproliferation. So correlation is not causation, to be sure, and I acknowledge that. Um, But it does suggest um, that the the post-Cold War period of extraordinary and unprecedented disarmament progress by the U.S. and the Russian Federation has also been, sort of, somewhat surprisingly, an era of regression when it comes to nonproliferation. So at the very least, I would suggest this history demonstrates that the relationship between disarmament and non if there is one, is much more complex than the conventional wisdom of the disarmament community would have it. And it certainly debunks the simplistic Disarmament progress leads to nonproliferation progress narratives uh, that one hears being advanced so often in NPT circles. Now, to say that, I will freely acknowledge, is not to argue that nuclear weapon states should not pursue what the NPT's Article 6 describes as effective measures to help bring about disarmament. They have committed to pursue those effective measures, and indeed they should, and in fact they have. But it does mean um, that the complex policy questions of this sort that exist, um, they resist simple answers. Um, And in fact, I would argue that responsible approaches to disarmament must acknowledge and understand and seek to ameliorate the problems of the global security environment uh, that threaten to make further disarmament progress problematic or even dangerous if such challenges fail to be addressed. So finding ways to do that is precisely the objective of our CEND initiative. And it's one of the reasons why we hope that serious and thoughtful disarmament advocates will join us in this CEND exploration. In the meantime, I would argue that it's very important to resist incautious attempts to answer the disarmament mail, if you will. For the urge to demonstrate disarmament by good faith, disarmament good faith by grand gestures can sometimes outrun good sense. And that is why, especially in the run-up to the 2020 review conference for the NPT, I would argue that non-proliferation diplomats need to be prepared to rebut well-meaning efforts to promote disarmament related narratives or proposals that are not actually likely to work. Or to contribute to international peace and security as advertised. So let me walk through some of these sort of uh, false narratives, if you will, and debunk them, I hope, to some degree. Uh, First and foremost, if we are to build the kind of disarmament dialogue that we need in order to make progress toward the goal, uh, toward that goal in time, in a time of deteriorating security conditions, it is important not to misdiagnose the problem. I can't tell you how many times I have heard the complaint from some disarmament NGOs, for example, and sometimes from otherwise responsible international interlocutors, that things like the NP, excuse me, that things like the Treaty on the, on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and the so-called Ban Treaty, that these things are necessary today because of a terrible lack of progress on nuclear disarmament. Some have even gone so far to say that such radical attempts at a solution are necessary because there has hitherto been no progress on disarmament. Taking it a step even further, uh, some years ago, the then head of the UN uh, Office of Disarmament Affairs actually declared to me uh, in official capacity that the U.S. should be given no credit for its nuclear reductions since the end of the Cold War because the end of that period of tension, the end of conflict, had reduced our need for such weapons. We should not be given disarmament credit for getting rid of them, he contended, because dismantling weapons we no longer needed in order to safeguard our national security um, didn't count as disarmament. His implications seem to be that it only counts as disarmament if you get rid of weapons that you do need, Uh, that is to say, if you risk committing national suicide. Uh, Now, such an assertion is obviously incorrect, and the idea that disarmament only counts if it harms your security is simply absurd. As I've noted, the truth is that both the U.S. and the Russians have reduced their nuclear arsenals by between 80 and 90 percent from their Cold War peak. I mentioned the 88 percent figure on our part. Um, And as I'd like to point out, 88 percent is a lot. If you think 88% is not real progress on disarmament, I would suggest, as I sometimes do for a laugh line, um, imagine coming to work wearing, having removed 88% of your clothes tomorrow morning. And how would your colleagues react? This is a significant figure. Imagine trying to live uh, having lost 88% of your salary. So we, we should not pretend that that is not a very significant thing. Um, clearly, disarmament progress of an enormous, really impressive sort has occurred. And while I fully understand that many would like more progress still, to pretend that what has been accomplished to date huge difficulty and expense. I should add, is meaningless. That is not just unfair, although, of course, it is unfair. It is also false and deeply pernicious. I don't just mean that pretending that all of this amounts to do nothing is unfair, though it is um, most significantly. It is actually dangerous to pretend that, uh, for the disarmament community, to tell weapons possessors that reductions of such a scale are essentially meaningless, just because the world is not yet to zero. Such messages, if they were to be taken in that fashion, risk damaging the disarmament enterprise in a profound way and discrediting the disarmament movement. Such messages risk signaling that the disarmament movement is actually not about achieving a better and safer world, but rather simply using a virtue-signaling discourse to undermine the security interests of the weapons possessors themselves. That is no way to build the kind of dialogue and good-faith engagement that we all need on these issues if disarmament is in fact to become a reality as we have pledged to try to make it through Article 6 and the preamble of the NPT. So credit should be given where credit is due. And weapons possessors who get rid of weapons they no longer need should absolutely be given credit and praise for doing so, especially when this, as in the case of the US, for instance, is the result of a continual reassessment of how deterrence can be maintained at the lowest possible level that prudence allows. This is what the disarmament movement should, in fact, be all about. And indeed, there is scarcely any other way to imagine disarmament actually ever happening. Our collective global security objective should be to gradually build a world in which no one feels that they need such tools any longer, because that's how such tools will go away if indeed they do. So the narrative that it only counts as disarmament to get rid of weapons about which, without which, one's national existence or those, that, those of one's allies would be or could be imperiled, that is a narrative that just encourages responsible listeners to ignore and distrust the speaker. The world deserves better than that, and the disarmament enterprise deserves better than that. So another set of, um, of confusions, if you will, that I think it is necessary to correct in order to improve the odds of making continued progress relates to how to deal today with states' expressed understandings in years past of the optimal disarmament agenda. When countries come together in fora such as the NPT review conferences, it is understandable for them to articulate and to express their commitment to pursuing whatever disarmament-related steps they think make the most sense in view of the circumstances that they face at the time. That's quite reasonable. Uh, But it's also important to keep an open mind about such things since the world has a habit, of course, of changing over time and there is no guarantee that what makes sense at one point will invariably make sense at a later point uh, under different conditions, potentially. So if our various diplomatic delegations are indeed doing their job, I would expect that the majority of such past pronouncements, in fact about collective disarmament aspirations would generally still make sense over time. Um, But especially where conditions in the global security environment are changing rapidly or significantly, it would also be surprising if all such past pronouncements always did. So I would argue that thoughtful proponents of disarmament need to acknowledge this. And they should understand it to be part of our collective responsibilities to curate and to adjust the policy agenda to ensure that it remains as relevant as possible in light of changing conditions. After all, an uncritical, reflexive adherence to yesterday's agenda, where changes have occurred in the intervening period, is likely to discredit the disarmament community and to make real progress more difficult. As an example, as part of the 13 practical steps, as they were called, agreed at the 2000 NPT Review Conference, it was urged that the U.S. and Russia implement START II, the Arms Control Treaty, negotiate START III, and strengthen the ABM Treaty, none of which exists today. Star-2, of course, was negotiated, ratified, uh, and ratified, but never entered into force. The U.S. withdrew from the ABM Treaty in order to respond to emerging threats from North Korean and Iranian missiles. Um, the... Uh or three negotiations never actually got going in the first place. And so you know, does it make sense uh, today to consider all of those 13 steps to be canonical wisdom as if chiseled in stone coming down from Sinai? I wouldn't think so. And yet the 2010 review conference explicitly reaffirmed, 2010, reaffirmed the continued validity of the practical steps agreed to in 2000. This isn't necessarily the way to do this right, folks. Um, and I would argue that a serious disarmament agenda for the present day must be willing to reassess its understandings as the world changes. That doesn't mean reflexively disregarding past policy commitments, but it also means not reflexively endorsing them either. Article 6 does not require any particular concrete steps, Article 6 of the NPT, um, and indeed the treaty's negotiating record is replete with repeated rejections of efforts to require them. Instead, what Article 6 does do, is enjoin all states to work together to move toward disarmament, specifically to pursue negotiations in good faith on effective measures relating to disarmament. And it leaves it to the judgment of future decision-makers how best to do this under the prevailing circumstances of any given time. It is our duty, I would argue, to live up to that responsibility that has been given to all of us by working to ensure that our policy agenda is one that effectively engages, engages with and addresses the issues and the challenges of our time. How our predecessors felt it best to engage and address the challenges of their time is, of course, quite relevant. But it should not be a priori dispositive. This is a responsibility for all weapon states, but not just them. It is for all states as well, as Article 6 also makes clear. The founders of the, the drafters of the treaty thought of that part, too. And it is essential that we seek, as they enjoin us, to do genuinely effective measures and not ones just that adhere to past formulations simply because there are past formulations. The nuclear weapon states have expressed an unequivocal commitment to disarmament, but this does not absolve anyone of the responsibility for ensuring that the measures that we seek to actually achieve are, in fact, effective in light of current circumstances. By analogy, for example, one might be unequivocally committed, if you will, to getting to the other side of town, as I did a few minutes ago to come here to Heritage. But it would be madness to press blindly forward irrespective of where each road actually leads or where there are sinkholes or or road congestion or or, uh, oncoming traffic when you wish to turn. Um, If disarmament is important enough to pursue, and we are all agreed, I hope that it is, it is something that is important enough to pursue with care and with prudence, and to contend that one should simply press forward in a straight line irrespective of the terrain is a sign of unseriousness. Let me turn to a different issue. There are probably many other disarmament narratives that probably richly deserve debunking as we seek to find a genuinely constructive way to move forward. Uh, and I won't trouble you with a long laundry list, but I would like to say a final word in this regard about a concept that is raised from time to time and that perhaps enjoys a kind of superficial appeal. Um, but... Well, it is one, unfortunately, that is also based upon some important misunderstandings um, and that, if adopted by the U.S., could actually impede rather than advance the disarmament progress that is envisioned in the NPT. I refer to the question of whether the United States should adopt a so-called no-first-use policy for nuclear weapons, or NFU, if you will. In the years after the end of the Cold War, the question of whether to make NFU into U.S. policy has come up several times. The Obama administration, for instance, flirted with declaring that the sole purpose of nuclear weapons is to defend against other nuclear weapons, a concept which is basically NFU and MUFTI, if you will, and a concept that former Secretary of Defense William Perry has explicitly explained was in fact developed as a way to rebrand no first use so that it could be sold under a different label, sub Silentio, if you will, to American audiences. But in the end, even for them, that notion was still found wanting. And indeed, it has consistently been dismissed by administrations in Washington of both parties as being both deeply unwise and as being inimical to U.S. interests. Nevertheless, NFU still bubbles up from time to time. In fact, it is, unfortunately for its proponents, no better an idea today than it was before. And if anything, I would argue that an NFU declaration by the U.S. today would probably actually be even more problematic now than at any other time since the Cold War ended. As for the idea that a lack of having a no-first-use pledge has harmed our nonproliferation policy, this is easily dispensed with, much as the broader question of disarmament progress being connected to nonproliferation progress that I discussed a few minutes ago. For there is no evidence of such a connection. And even if a lack of NFU were to have some vague, chilling effect upon disarmament diplomacy, it is still, I would argue, a poor basis upon which to make strategic posture decisions in an arena of potentially existential questions about how to prevent great power war. Now, as for the claim that NFU provides predictability, which is sometimes made, I think in practice it would do no such thing, and indeed that it might have the real effect of increasing, rather than lessening, uncertainty and adversary distrust, and might make it harder to achieve the kind of clarity about posture and doctrinal thinking that we think it is important to have in order for the weapons possessors of the world to help address their stability problems. Now, as a general rule try to explain these, these points. As a general rule, nuclear weapons possessors that face significant non-nuclear threats, such as the danger of a large-scale conventional invasion, for example, or an assault with chemical, biological, or, or perhaps cyber weapons that could have strategic crippling effect, or perhaps countries that wish to deter aggression against their allies who face such threats, those countries historically, and I think very understandably, tend to opt against NFU policies. Because to adopt a no-first-use policy, after all, would be to proclaim that you will not use or threaten to use nuclear weapons to deter any non-nuclear threat, no matter how great it might be. Now, precisely because successive generations of U.S. leaders have cared so deeply and consistently about preserving the integrity of U.S. nuclear umbrella alliance networks in Europe and in East Asia, the United States has always eschewed no-first-use. This was especially important during the Cold War, but it remains important in the current era, especially since we we see so much of worsening great power competition in regional theaters where Russia and China enjoy local advantages in conventional forces vis-a-vis U.S. allies that they seek to intimidate in hopes of dividing us from them and ultimately decoupling those allies from our deterrent umbrella. In that particular context today, I would argue that a NFU declaration would be desperately unwise. It would be a blow to the heart of our alliance system. It would be a potential signal to would-be regional aggressors, as well as to our friends, that we do not intend to fully to defend our alliance partners. And it would be a repudiation of decades of bipartisan and trans-oceanic good sense and agreement upon one of the most important planks of U.S. foreign and national security policy. Historically, at least, it tends to be nuclear-armed countries which perceive themselves to possess an overwhelming non-nuclear advantage, Uh, or perhaps those who want rather cynically to increase the pressure upon a nuclear-armed ally not to defend itself, um, who tend to find no-first-use attractive. Perhaps the most interesting case study here is the Soviet No-First-Use Pledge made by Leonid Brezhnev in 1982. This pledge was an entirely dishonest promise designed to help encourage the nuclear freeze movement in the West, to undermine the nuclear deterrence upon which NATO allies relied in order to deter invasion by armed By the armored columns that reported to that very same Leonid Brezhnev, and, in fact, to persuade the NATO alliance not to respond to Moscow's deployment of SS-20 missiles, hundreds of them. Uh, The Soviet NFU pledge was a promise, in fact, that the Soviets themselves never meant to keep in the first place, as we now know, thanks to subsequent post-Cold War declassification of uh, information about what their actual war planning, in fact, was. Now, the Brezhnev example, I would argue, demonstrates how no first use can actually undermine deterrence and stability, and how feel-good virtue signaling in nuclear policy can sometimes be weaponized for political ends and ends. Now, especially in light of the continuing importance of our alliance relationships today and the worsening threat of revisionist aggression in local theaters where our own forces are somewhat thin on the ground, I would encourage those in the West who may be tempted to take the NFU idea seriously to think these things through rather carefully. It is worth asking whether our security and international peace and security would really benefit if we proclaimed an NFU policy and that both our allies and our adversaries actually believed it. I submit that that would not be an improvement. But that, of course, also brings us to the question of whether our allies and adversaries would, in fact, believe it if we proclaimed NFU. And there lies another one of NFU's problems. As a mere statement of policy choice, if you will, having a no-first-use doctrine is basically just a statement of intent, and it is something that can be undone just as easily as it can be proclaimed, uh, without any advanced requirement of notice, of course, if any at all. Since it could be changed on a whim, NFU might be a signal potent enough to convince our allies that we are not very serious about defending them, but it is very difficult to see how any adversary would place any significant reliance in such a promise. After all, if a nuclear-armed state faced an overwhelming conventional invasion, for example, or it faced a strategically crippling non-nuclear attack with some other form of WMD or whatever, um, how reasonable is it to expect that that country would really abjure using, or at least threatening to use, the nuclear weapons that it has in its possession in order to save itself? I would think that to ask this question is actually to answer it. Uh, In the kind of circumstances in which NFU would matter most between adversaries who have nuclear weapons, a bare, no-first-use declaration can be relied upon the least, NFU, after all, is just a statement. It's not a suicide note. Now, this goes to the heart of why NFU would not, in fact, provide the predictability in a crisis that some of its advocates contend that it would. Now, to be sure, there presumably are circumstances in which an NFU declaration would be very credible indeed. But these are not the circumstances that anyone cares very much about. For example, no one would question a U.S. promise not to use nuclear weapons first against our closest treaty allies. But the circumstances that would make that declaration credible are not ones that Make it, you know, they are ones that make it entirely unnecessary to start with. That kind of an NFU promise would be obviously reliable because we are obviously close allies and friends with those countries anyway, and between us there wouldn't be problems that would arise to raise those questions at all. So, you know, where it is most credible, it is least necessary. Uh, And where it is most necessary, it is least credible. That is not a recipe for success. Now, if anything, the example of the old 1982 pledge from Alina Brezhnev suggests that the effort to claim credit for an NFU policy could actually contribute to unpredictability and distrust in a deterrence relationship. I can't imagine, for example, that Moscow or Beijing would feel any more reassured by a U.S. NFU pledge, if I made one today, for example, um, than they would before. Um, To the contrary, actually, having themselves both some experience with questionable NFU promises, they might feel more insecure and distrustful at the game that we would obviously be trying to play, in their view. They would see our own NFU claims as a kind of you know dishonest and uh, manipulative opacity, if you will, uh, that moves away from the kind of transparency and confidence building and, and engagement on issues of doctrine and posture that we have been, I think, quite correctly trying to encourage in the strategic arena and to elicit from our nuclear competitors. Worse, given the Kremlin's weird fears of some kind of invasion by NATO, of all things, Uh, a declaration of NFU policy might be interpreted in Moscow as being exactly what it was that Leonid Brezhnev attempted in 1982. That is to say, a stunt to delegitimize an adversary's potential use of nuclear weapons to deter conventional aggression. So while I would posit that the worst-case scenario would actually be if our great power adversaries actually believed an NFU declaration, in which case they might feel much more free to threaten our allies in some fashion with non-nuclear force, the alternative scenario would also be quite bad. It would lead to adversaries who are more distrusting of our intentions than before and even less willing to engage with us on transparency and confidence-building measures in strategic policy. And since our nuclear umbrella uh, allies might quite plausibly take a strategically not even a strategically non-credible NFU declaration as a clear message that Washington now finds it distasteful to contemplate using nuclear weapons to defend them, we would in the process have ripped asunder our most valuable alliance relationships. Moreover, in articulating contempt for ally reassuring extended deterrence that we have tried to maintain for so many decades. An NFU declaration could undo declaration sorry, could undo generations of US nonproliferation policy, undermining nonproliferation excuse me, undermining the proliferation disincentives that are provided by our alliance relationships, in signaling to any current allies who think that nuclear weapons are still needed to deter aggression against them that it might be time for them to start building such weapons themselves. So on the whole, I would argue that an U.S. NFU declaration would be, for all these reasons, a terrible idea. For all the potential feel-good psychology of NFU, its reality would be, I fear, only sordid and problematic, ushering us into nuclear weapons relationships that are more unstable, less predictable, and and more untrusting than at present, transforming our alliance relationships at the same time into ones that are weaker and more tenuous than today, and making nuclear proliferation and indeed, nuclear war, perhaps more likely. So, as we seek through the CEND process, our new initiative for dialogue and disarmament, to build a serious engagement with parties around the world to address the myriad security challenges that make disarmament progress difficult, I think we must encourage thoughtful consideration of all such issues, but we must also be willing, where necessary, to point out the flaws in some of the traditional rhetorical reflexes, reflexes, I should say, of the disarmament community. Finding a sound way forward requires cutting through such underbrush, even if doing so cuts somewhat against the conventional wisdom of political correctness. We are trying to chart a path along these lines with our CDND initiative and the working group that we are establishing under its auspices. As we move forward to the 2020 Review Conference of the NPT, I hope that more and more international counterparts will join us in trying to address these issues thoughtfully, with seriousness, and with an open mind. By trying to debunk some of these false narratives, I mean to take no position hostile to the disarmament enterprise and indeed a position fundamentally friendly to that enterprise because it is only by getting through those confusions and debunking those false paths and and, and wrong roadways um, that we stand a chance of being able to work together with our international partners to find a way that genuinely and productively works toward a safer and more secure world that is ultimately free of nuclear weapons in ways that are both consistent with international peace and security our own interests and the safe and sustainable maintenance of that kind of a world it is no easy challenge but part of it requires the kind of intellectual honesty that I've tried to just catalyze a little bit today and I hope that uh, uh, perhaps we can have some questions and answers about uh, about how to uh, how to try to do that in the, in the months and the years I had so thank you very much for the patience of listening to a very long long set of remarks and uh, thank you for for all of that I'd be happy to try to take some questions um, but I understand we may be cutting off the live stream Appreciate if we could be under Chatham House rules for the following bits.